So this is an interesting time of year as Christians, and um, the reason for that is that it has this, this, there are these competing tensions for the first Sunday of the new year. On the one hand, we have uh, the fact that we are still in Christmas time, and uh, as a congregation that in a lot of ways has dispersed a lot over Christmas time, we had a, a wonderful time of morning prayer at our house last Sunday, but this is kind of our one shot at, at, at a larger service of being Christmassy together, and, uh, and it's right and proper, so that's why we're singing a lot of Christmas hymns again tonight, because it's still Christmas. There's 12 days of Christmas, and Christmas lasts until Wednesday. So that's why I said Merry Christmas at the beginning of the service. But also, obviously, uh, a lot of you were up pretty late on Friday night, I imagine, um, welcoming in this thing that we call the New Year. And uh, so our world's calendar sort of projects itself onto this time as well. And at the beginning of January, most of us, if we're um, at all normal, whatever normal is, (laughs) most of us start to think about, well, what was life like for me in 2010 when I look back? And uh, we, we do a little inventory, and we, we hopefully spend some time just giving thanks to God for the, the blessings um, that he's given to us over the last year. But especially, we begin to look ahead, and we look towards this new year, 2011, um, full of potential and possibility, and uh, anything that we, we, we start thinking, well, what might this new year bring? And one of the things, one of the traditions that we have inherited um, in this, this culture of New Year's is the tradition of making New Year's resolutions. Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'd venture to guess that a significant number of you in this room actually made some kind of New Year's resolution or resolutions over the past, over this weekend. And, uh, and I want to do a little deconstruction of the theology of New Year's resolutions for just a moment. Uh, this is leading us into the word, I promise. But... Um, so, New Year's resolutions begin in a kind of uh, a state of failure and shortcoming, guilt, embarrassment, whatever it might be. So you were thinking back to 2010, you were thinking, man, you know, it didn't really go the way I wanted it to, I really messed up, uh, I didn't go to the gym past January 3rd last year, and, uh, and I'm setting a new course this year. So they begin in this sort of state of self-examination uh, that, that proves to us that, that we're really just failures and, and we're full of mistakes. And, and up to this point, the theology of New Year's resolutions is quite good, actually. <laughs> that uh, there's something that we want to affirm in, in our shortcomings, uh, certainly as those who want to follow the Bible. Um, but then, this is, where the, this is where New Year's resolutions go astray. Um, the solution to the problem is simply, so we're going to try harder this year, right? See, so the, the two most common New Year's resolutions um, for us as human beings are having to do with, with money on the one hand and with fitness or weight on the other hand. These are the two most common, commonly um, resolved resolutions, however you would say that, uh, in the new year. So you say, you know, I am going to make a new course in 2011. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to, I'm going to be at the gym 6 a.m., you know, every, every week, um, 52 times a year. Or, you know, I'm going to put some money away every month, and at the end of the year, I'm going to have some savings um, for whatever. Uh, or whatever your resolution. So, but the, the point I'm making is, is the only hope for us in these resolutions typically is ourselves, we, we, we think that we're going to make a difference. So New Year's resolutions are a classic example 
of our culture's love for this theology of self-improvement. Just ask yourself the question, if you made a New Year's resolution this year, did you think about God when making that resolution? Did he factor into to your equation at all? Probably not, honestly, especially if it was a trivial one. But the reality is, is that, that we, we love to make ourselves better. And so the idea of a, of a New Year's resolution, the theology of a New Year's resolution, is that you ultimately are your own savior, that uh, you are the one that, that everything depends upon whether you're going to come out okay or not. Now, this is problematic, and, and, and it's problematic on a whole host of levels, but uh, one reason that it's problematic is simply for the fact that you will fail at your New Year's resolution. I hate to break that news to you here on, on January 2nd, but it's, it's quite likely, if past experience is any indication of future experience, that, that you're going to fail at whatever you've resolved um, so bravely to do in 2011. And when you fail, then it leads to a kind of misery. Uh, because not only have you not lived up, uh, well, not only have you not kept your resolution, but you've not lived up to this intense amount of willpower that you felt on January 1st. So on top of just not meeting your goal, you have now self-condemnation added on top of that to make you fairly miserable. So in an attempt to avoid this kind of uh, unfortunate um, domino effect of things in your life this year, I want to consider that there's a different way of making resolutions as we move into 2011. And this is one of the reasons, actually, that I love the fact that the Christmas season literally wraps New Year's Eve and New Year's Day up into itself. So this kind of convergence of, of the, the secular world and calendar and the, Chris, the Christian calendar coming together has New Year's providentially placed in Christmas time. And Christmas um, helps us do, I think, a slightly different job of these whole, bit, these whole ideas of resolution. So now enter Luke 2, uh, verses 8 through 14, where we're going to be tonight. We've been in Luke's gospel a lot over the fall, and, and so I wanted to stay here in Christmas tide. Luke 2, chapter, verse 8, we get the story of the shepherds in their flock at night. And into their world comes an angel. This uh, sheer act of the grace of God, a gift of God being given to them in their humdrum, everyday, normal duty of watching their flocks at night. On the scene appears this angel, and it says, into this darkness. Now, back in chapter 1, we, we'd heard about this, this, um, this light that would dawn from on high, and this light that would come, and it's a theme for us in Advent. Well, you see that lived out here in Luke 2. In the, into their darkness, the angel comes, and it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. So their dark environment now becomes filled with light, and it's the light of the glory of God. Now, they didn't do anything to have this light shining around them. It just happened to the shepherds. Shepherds weren't anybody special. Shepherds were commonplace people. They were known as peasants, really. They weren't the lowest of the low, but they certainly didn't have a lot of social status in their day. They were just kind of normal, everyday people doing their normal, everyday work. And into that situation, God shows up through this angel. And their darkness is turned into light. There is a gift. And like Mary, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, these stories that we've looked at up to this point, like Joseph, God has his way of entering into their world and into their lives. We can call this nothing other than a gift. God does something that isn't earned or deserved or, or, um, or, or prepared for. He just shows up 
and changes everything in their lives. And this angel then says something. He says, well, first of all, don't be afraid because their first response to this amazing uh, epiphany of God's presence in their world was, was fear. They were afraid, which is commonly a response when God manifests himself to us in a powerful way. So he first it reassures them. He says, fear not. And he says, for behold, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This announcement of what had just taken place in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2, the birth of Jesus, this announcement that, that God is giving, God is working, God is announcing, God is doing something. And this is good news. Good news of a great joy that will be for all people. This good news is the news that we celebrate in Christmas tide, this news of God coming among his people, God, the pre-existent, glorious, all-powerful God, coming into the world as a little baby. Weak, relatively uh, insecure, dependent in every way, this God entering the world in this way. And he announces something. He announces in verse 11 that he's born this day in the city of David a what? A savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. Now this announcement has two contexts within which it's meant to be heard in Luke's gospel in chapter 2. The first context is one in which um, this savior who is Christ, the Lord, is buttressed up against a different savior. Now this is the context of the Greco-Roman world and particularly of the, the reigning Lord of the present-day empire of Rome, Caesar Augustus, who was mentioned in chapter 2, verse 1. So Luke's already got him on the map for us. This is the world's true savior, Caesar Augustus. And it's against the, the, um, the lingo of the Roman Empire about Caesar that Luke writes with these words of good news, of a great joy for all people. These are charged terms in the first century context, or if a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Listen to just for just a moment to what the provincial assembly of the Roman Empire in Asia said when they made the decision to make the birthday of Caesar Augustus the first day of the new year. So they wanted to honor him, so they made his birthday the first day of the new year of the calendar. And they say this, where is the providence which divinely ordered our lives, created with zeal and munificence the most perfect good for our lives by producing Augustus and filling him with searcher for the benefaction of mankind. Sorry about some of the words. Sending us and those after us a savior who put an end to war and established all things. And whereas Caesar Augustus, when he appeared, exceeded the hopes of all who had anticipated good tidings, good news, And whereas the birthday of the God marked for the world the beginning of good tidings through his coming. You hear those words of similar similar words to what Luke writes in his gospel. Good tidings, a savior for all the world. Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. In many ways, Caesar Augustus represents for us the end of the New Year's resolution culture. He is the epitome of the self-made man or woman, the one who has set out certain goals and objectives and achieved those goals and objectives 
and finds himself at the height of his world's um, most, uh, at the height of his world's ambitions. He is the empire. He is the emperor. He's the ruler. If anybody's made it, he's made it. And over against that world is this baby born in a manger, or placed in a manger. This baby born from a virgin, from a, a young peasant girl. This baby that's uh, praised and adored by, by shepherds, these peasants that come from their flocks to see him. So you have this one world that Luke is speaking against, that the angel is speaking against. There's a rival to this Caesar. And though the, the kingdom of this king looks very different, it will be proven to be true. So much so that within just 30 or 40 years from this time when Jesus is born, or maybe 40 or 50 years, Caesar, on down the line from Augustus, is now trying to, to, to persecute and silence the followers of this baby born in Bethlehem. Fast forward another 250 years from that, and Caesar now comes to worship this baby born in Bethlehem. Though beginning from a a weak and insignificant and hardly recognizable place, the world's true Lord is ultimately honored by the the, um, false lords of the world. So that's on the one hand against Rome. On the other hand, again, um, this, these words of good news, of a great joy for all people, of a Savior who is Messiah, who is Lord, are, are clearly given by the angel in the context of the Jewish hope. And particularly the book of Isaiah, actually. Chapters 40 through 66, but also chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, uh, where we get this news of this one uh, who will be a light to the people sitting in darkness. And, and you, you see that this one who was born on Christmas morning is the ultimate fulfillment of the hope of a people who have been longing for God to come and to do his great and final work. So not only is this baby standing up against Caesar Augustus, those who, who, who make it in the world, but he's also standing as the sign of God's ultimate faithfulness to his word and his mission in the world to come and to rescue people to come and to lift from us the biggest burdens, the things that we, that we cannot bear, the things that we cannot do, to take from us um, our, our, our largest burden, which is that of, of sin itself. So he comes and, and he answer, he's the answer to these hopes of this nation. Against Caesar, in fulfillment of the hopes of the nation of Israel, and therefore of all the world, comes this baby in a manger, this gift that God has given to his people. And he is Lord. That's what we profess as the church. Jesus is Lord. And he's an undeserved Lord for us. He is Savior. He is the Messiah. And he's undeserved for us. So this is what Christmas has to say to New Year's. We want to make our New Year's resolutions not in light of our failure and our embarrassment about what went on in 2010. But we want to make and think about, I mean, I want you to think about what do you want from this year that's ahead of you? What are the things that you're longing for? What are the things that you want to resolve to see come about in your life? The context for those resolutions is not one of, I messed up, i got to do better this time, i got to make my, 
you know, tidy resolutions so I can become who I really want to be. But it's the context of those who hear this news that the angels announce to the shepherds. Behold, good news of a great joy that will be for all people. It's the context of those who understand that that what defines us more than anything else is the gift of God given to us on Christmas morning in His Son. Come, not just to live a life and teach us good things, but to die a death on a cross on Good Friday and to be raised from the dead on Easter morning so that the burden that you cannot bear can be borne for you. In other words, make your resolutions for 2011 as those who have been recipients of the goodness and the gift of God in His Son, Jesus. And therefore, who have every reason to have great joy in all circumstances. To have life. To have a sense of peace and rest that everything doesn't depend upon me. But what is most important in my life is given to me by my Heavenly Father who gave us His Son, on Christmas morning. In, in, the, uh, in the Booker family, in the early years, we had a tradition of making like a, a slogan for the year. Um, and the only one that's worth sharing with you was in, in 1999. It was on time in 99. Uh, Mandy and I aren't known for our promptness um, when it comes to getting places. So I, I was thinking about this for the church for this year. <clears throat> I couldn't come up with anything really good for 2011, but the, the best I could do was like, you know, be the leaven in 2011 or something like that, you know, or citizens of heaven in, in 11. That's about the only two I could come up with. But the point is, as you think about this new year, I want you to think about your, your resolutions for, just, for, for a moment as those who have been saved and redeemed by the Christmas message, by the Christmas King. New Year's resolutions back to the beginning that we make for ourselves to better ourselves ultimately lead to our own glorification and usually not to the peace of, of, of the world but to its division because as we scrape and claw to get what we really want and need you know we make our resolution to go to the gym we ignore our our, our, our wife and children or our uh, our church family because we're going to get what we need verse 14 the heavenly host appears with this angel and they praise God and they say glory to God in the highest And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Resolutions made in the light of the Christmas story and salvation will bring glory to God in the highest. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Psalm 115.1 And peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. This great hope of well-being and of blessing that Jesus' birth into the world now begins to bring in As we make resolutions in 2011 in light of the Christmas story, those resolutions as people who don't have an identity to go out and create but who are given one and given a great gift in the grace of God will bring ultimately the glory of God in Boston through this community. And they will bring peace to the people around you. Because as those who have been made whole by this Savior you will be able to now expend yourselves, not in some kind of self-improvement, but for the sake of others, for loving them, building them up, giving your life to them. Others close in, your spouse, your, your children, your church family, your neighbors, your co-workers. 
and others beyond those that you don't even know as you seek to live this life and, and bear this light into the world. So let's make resolutions in 2011 in light of this Christmas story of the gift of God and his grace in his son Jesus. Merry Christmas. Amen.